Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome. To the H2O podcast, my name is Jason Hunt. I am Timothy Harvey. And I, I gotta, I gotta say, I, I gotta say this, Tim. Um, the the last few weeks, I don't know why, but for the last few weeks, I have been tempted uh, some kind of a a, a, a a mental hiccup or something in my brain that says, um, my, my mouth wants to keep saying the H2O project and hmm. I don't know why that is. Maybe because it's grown larger than a podcast. I, well, maybe, I don't know, but I'm know. just like, oh, okay. I mean, and, and I'm wondering if we ought to change the title of the show anyway, because it's still, it's still, if anybody that's not familiar with this still thinks maybe we're talking about water, but we're not. I mean, I, you know, I think, I think clever, if we change anything, it's, you know, the H2O title. project works. Um, it make it makes me think of the Alan Parsons project. Ah. Uh, and uh, considering, you know, the, if you're a genre fan, as we are, mm. uh, the Alan Pars the the Alan Parsons Project Library is chock full of fantasy, science fiction, and horror influenced music. Of course, yeah. the very first album they put out was Tales of Mystery and Imagination, which was based on Edgar Allan Poe's writing. Uh, it's a fantastic album if you've never heard it, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure. H2O well, project. Let's. We, we, you know we, have to cut, we have to cut an album and go on tour. The other thing we could do is I retire and it becomes the Timothy Hardy project, and then you can have you can have guest hosts. You can have guest co-hosts. Good night, folks. You don't. You've been that route before. I well. See, it, the difference would be that you'd have co-hosts that would rotate. You could have anybody on that you wanted. And it'd See, be the problem there. is my my experience with that was when we did that show, when, yeah. when it became the Tim Harvey show, um, it was right at the point when some of the worst people oh, in I the know. entertainment industry were being exposed. And so yeah. every single week, <laughs> it was just like, and unfortunately, I have to lead with this story about this absolute monster of a human being who has done a terrible thing. And people <laughs> have sat there with this person did a terrible thing. And everyone's like, look at this terrible person. And it's like, it was every week. And of course, it was Harvey Weinstein really just kicked everything off. But it was also Kevin Spacey right about that time. Yeah. And it was really just, I mean, for a show where I really just wanted to talk about fun things, there was so much just... I mean, I'm glad Harvey Weinstein is, you know, no longer out there doing terrible things to folks. But you know what? <laughs> I could have done without having that be the topic all the time. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It weighs on you after yes. a while. Is you it know, does. I'd much rather talk about. I mean, we're our our topic said for this episode, unfortunately, uh, is triggered by by a death, but it was also inspired by a long life. Ninety one for yeah. Richard Donner. That's not a, that's a, that's a good life. Yeah, and, and and he was in the midst of pre-production for Lethal Weapon Five. He wasn't done. Oh yeah, well, and, and you go back and you look at his catalog, and I for I tend to forget. I, you focus on his films, 
he, he, so many of his films were were just iconic motion pictures. But you go back to his television career, and yeah, so yeah. much of the stuff that I grew up watching with my dad. Uh, you know, we'd have uh, we've talked about this before. You know, Saturdays was was the science fiction movies on on early days of cable, and then Sundays was creature features. But because TV recycled all of the old classic television over and over and over again. I, you know, you grew up with Gunsmoke and The Man from Uncle and The Fugitive and The Twilight Zone, all shows. He directed some of the iconic episodes of. And you forget that he had this kind of, you know, breadth and depth to his career. Mm -hmm. Even leaving aside some of the some of the films that he made that are just some of my all-time favorite movies. I remember uh, and 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 I guess I should interrupt. I, I should interrupt just here real quick because just just a note here for everyone. This is pre-recorded, and the reason why is because I am likely somewhere inside the arena for a WWE event that's that's going on. Assuming that the. Whatever the schedule is, I don't know. I'm just right. like, well, okay. So we're pre-recording this just in case. Um, uh, but yeah, I remember uh, when when I was a kid. I mean, young, maybe eight or nine. I don't I don't remember how old I was. And I was watching an episode of Gilligan's Island. And this, well, it would have had to have been after '78. So I was probably nine or ten years old. Right. And I remember, uh, because I I let it play, you know, watch the credits and whatnot, and it says directed by Richard Donner, and I went, what? And I guess at that point, it was one of those things where I realized he'd done more than just Superman. Right. And, uh, you know, seeing seeing his name in a, in a director credit for Gilligan's Island, of all things. But then you also stop and consider that he did... Danger Island. He was responsible for all of the live action segments there as part of the Banana Splits variety show. And yeah, yeah. get your head around that for a second, yes, folks. <laughs> because the, the contrast here is that of course my first exposure to him really in, in registering who he was. Um, not not really the impact of who he was. You just, I knew there was a the guy who directed Superman the movie was Richard Donner. Yeah, that you know. I, beyond that, I honestly didn't care all that much. You know, you, this there when you're a kid, you don't necessarily think about I want to follow the career of this director. Yeah. Right? They're they're not the important person, right? They're, they're <laughs> they are, but they for, from a kid's perspective, no. So it didn't register. But as, as I got older and became a horror fan, the film that put him on the map for you know the. It would be unlikely that he actually was directing Superman if he hadn't had the success with The Omen. Yeah, one of the another one of those iconic horror films that, um, quite frankly, I, the original still holds up. Um, I mean, it, it's dated, but a lot of that's because of fashion. But in terms of the story and the performances and and the plot the the way the film unfolds the cinematography it holds up pretty well it's it's very it, it looks like a product of its time didn't and that's I, the only strike against it you can really go with that with that film yeah horrible. didn't didn't i read somewhere that he wasn't the original 
selection. He wasn't the original choice for for directing the Omen. Um, you know, I think that may be the case, but I'm honestly I, not. I sure. want to say that they had. Oh, I can't remember now. I recognize the name, but I can't. I, um... I I don't know if it was the Omen or if it was Superman because I know I know the Salkins got in touch with Donner because of the success of the Omen. That might have been the one. It might have been that they called Donner because they had somebody in it and it fell through for some reason. But there was one of those. Now I'm thinking either the Omen or Superman, where where he had uh, very short notice. And mm-hmm. wasn't the first choice, and was one of those. Um, uh, it just kind of, it kind of was a happy accident that uh, that he got in there. I'm uh, I, I'm not sure. I do know that that one of the things that I've always been intrigued by is the fact that he originally wanted the ending of the Omen to be more ambiguous, which is something that has come into a lot in in modern horror films. That sort of you get to the end of the movie and it's like, but is it? Um, <laughs> whether that's been, you know, well, the, the it's not over part has been around for a while. But the idea that, that you know, what you saw, the villain may or may not be what you think they are. That's, that's a, a thing that when handled well, that was his original plan for the Omen was you get to the end of the movie and whether or not this kid who have you been looking at the entire time is the Antichrist, spoiler alert, for a film that came out in 1976, um, is actually, you know, whether or not he's actually the Antichrist or not. Of course, yeah. your alternative is, is that, you know, he's a little pint-sized psychopath, but, you know, well, six of one. The way, <laughs> the, way that, uh, the way that all of that played out was, you know, the, you know, Gregory Peck's approach was is this guy losing his mind or is this actually going on that he's you know that he's dealing with the spawn of satan type of thing and it was you know that's that's one of the ways that they had discussed it on 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 how to approach all of that so it was but the producer the producers wanted a definitive answer and that's yeah. fine i mean it, it i i'm don't i'm not complaining about the end of the omen i'm just saying that i would have been interested to see how it would have played if donner had gotten his way i'm curious that's that's the alternate ending i want to see yeah all right i'm looking this up because this is this is bothering me of whether or not uh whether or not he was supposed to direct the omen first or not um because he he had just done one film prior to that and everything well, else actually, was, was on he's television. actually done a few his first one was actually called x15 which was a basically a commercial for the air force um that uh the flight photography everyone seems to say that the i haven't seen it the flight photography apparently was quite good this there was a romantic subplot that the people who watched it sat there but this is not good um, so it was, you know, it wasn't anything to start off with, but he'd actually made a film called salt and pepper, which I haven't seen. And a film called Lola, which I haven't seen. Um, both of which, um, are, 
um, not particularly appealing to me, I guess. <laughs> Peter Lawford and, and Sammy Davis Jr. have a swinging night, London nightclub in Salt and Pepper. Um, and okay. And uh, Lolo is a story of a 38 year old writer of pornographic novels meets and falls in love with a 16 year old girl. Done. I'm done. I, I don't, I'm not interested. <laughs> this doesn't appeal. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I can't speak to the quality of the work. They're not genre movies and, as, as we generally consider them, obviously. Um, but in, you, you, get to, you get to kicking off with The Omen. And then you get Superman. And then you look at the rest of his career and how genre-focused it is. He clearly was, he clearly loved genre films. Um, and of course, he went to write. He wrote comic books, and mm -hmm. I mean, this was a guy who, who who loved these kinds of stories. And I just look at some of these films, you know, The Goonies, Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk is one of my all-time favorite fantasy films. Yeah, that's it. It's um, sorely over uh, underrated. My first, the first time I, I developed anything resembling a crush on Michelle Pfeiffer was Lady <laughs> Hawk. Um, and it, it, it's, you know, I mean, it's my second favorite uh, Rucker Hauer movie. And it's a tight, very close, you know, right up against Blade Runner. I mean, he's he's so good in that film. And it's such a it's such a well-crafted fantasy movie. Um, but then you get to Lethal Weapon. You get to Scrooged. That is that is my favorite Christmas film. It is a deeply, deeply, deeply cynical Christmas movie that holds up very well as a very sweet and very funny Christmas movie, but its core message is a very sweet one. Mm -hmm. It's just draped in, in beautiful Bill Murray cynicism. <laughs> and, and the story on that one is that Bill Murray and Richard Donner did not get along on that. They did not. Um, Murray had actually taken a break from acting because they had originally had point Scrooge had come across his his plate a few years before they actually made the film and he was taking he was enjoying not acting and um, a few years later he decides to get back into it and Donner comes along and they apparently their initial meeting went really really well but on set, mm -hmm. not so much. And apparently, a lot of it came down to um, the writing because the screenwriters who wrote the film had a lot of influence. Murray influenced the script a lot. He worked very closely with the screenwriters. And according to Murray, one scene in the movie is what's left of what they, that's really his mark on the film. And it's it's the scene at the end where he goes on where he, where he wanders around the studio just talking. Right. Um, that was apparently unscripted, and he's just going. In fact, one I guess one of the people was like, "Is he having a is is he okay? Is he you know?" And apparently, Richard Donner liked it so much he hit the person next to him when he said, "You know, we should, should we stop him?" Um, but. <laughs> The uh, uh, the screenwriters have said that they were Donner really changed what they intended for the film, ah. which makes you wonder what the original vision was considering how well this movie works as it is. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, how crazy would it have been if this is like the tamped down version? But, um, and you know, the fact is, is that many sets uh, are not, not the most happy peaceful. Ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and I got to say, um, having having directed and having an actor who, excuse me, excuse me. Having an actor who does not give you the performance that you want can be trying at times, especially if it's your lead actor in a feature and you can't replace him because you flew him in to do the part. Sure. And yeah, so... Sure. Yeah, um, I, can, I, will, I can understand that whole thing. And just, I will tell this one tiny story, and I will not name a name because it was my experience that other people may not have had it. And and this per I know this person was going through some issues at the time, but I made a film, um, and I had a very large cast, relatively speaking, mm. and um, it was an ensemble cast. There were leads, but but there Everybody's were a lot of. There. Yeah. yeah there, no, there were no unimportant parts, and they're all important. That's any film, but I mean, there's you know everybody had something to contribute to the story. Um, they weren't extras, extras, that right? Kind of thing. Um, and we were. It was a troubled shoot because our we had location issues. We were only allowed to be on our location for a very, very short period of time, uh, and that was not the original plan. And so we basically had to build our set. Uh, and then tear it down in like three hours mm -hmm. and then get as much shot as we could. It was, it was, we made the film. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pleased with a lot of the, you know, a lot of the movie turned out pretty well, but I had an actor who I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure he was stoned out of his mind on something. <laughs> um, and, and there basically came a point where we got to the edit and it was, we ended up cutting around that character so much yeah. that a character who had, I think, some you know decent amount of dialogue, really ended up being turning into uh, largely an extra in in the shoot just because they their performance was not what they could give, and I'd certainly seen them get better stuff. And then they just stopped showing up to set. So it's like, all right, well there you go. And that's the I mean I. I I said I would never work with this person again, uh, and I have not. <laughs> but I've heard that I heard that you know they, they were going through some stuff. I know that, yeah. but you know it, it impacted the film. So and that happens on on big productions, you know, with, with Hollywood studios as well. And that's just one of those things that happens. Right, you work around it. Well, and and you have those those sets where it's not just not just the the director and the performers, but the director and the producers, because Donner himself and the Sulkins. Yeah. had I guess what you could what the modern term is creative differences and he uh, you oh. know they're shooting they're shooting Superman and Superman 2 back to back and as they're in the process of doing Superman 2 they're they're finishing up the first one and I I've seen various different stories over the years of the, you know, what different clashes and whatnot. And, and, and Donner ended up not finishing Superman two. Right. And 
<clears throat> I look at the Richard Donner cut of that movie, and I think it's not that different from what we got, but it's not necessarily better. It's not. I. It's not as comedic. There's not as much. There's not as much comedy in the Donner right. cut, and I think that that's an improvement. Um, we got yeah, a I little think, too much, a little too much Lester, catch from Lester. Yeah, they're there. Yeah, I'd say that the. I, I don't have a problem with comedy in superhero movies. Um, sometimes it, you know, the Deadpool movies are an example of <clears throat> how successful that can be. Yeah, but the the tone of the comedy is so slapstick. Yeah. And it just doesn't have, you know, and, and as a kid, it, it bothers you less. But as you get older, you sit there and go, okay. Um, well, it also violates yeah. this concept, the, 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 the Richard Donner mantra of veris, verisimilitude, you know, uh, where you have everything needs to be believable and realistic as if, I mean, and it's, and it's a different thing. Yeah, I've been thinking about this off and on for a while now. The 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 whole grim and gritty and the realistic and the grounded in reality type of thing that we've been getting it especially from the sure. DC movies recently. There's a big difference between that kind of realism and you know, could you talk about Zack Snyder wanting to put real world physics in 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 all of this stuff? Mm -hmm. There's a difference between that and Donner's approach to realism, verisimilitude—I'm never going to be able to just belt that word out. Vera, verisimilitude. Anyway, this this real that word that word this, that V word that we yes know. this this realism this believability. It's not necessarily realism as much as it is believability. You know, the the whole slogan on Superman, you'll believe a man could fly. It's it's that idea of this maybe necessarily isn't something that could happen in real life, but within the context of that story universe, you believe that this this is happening. And I think I think that's the key, is that it's within the context of the story they're telling. Yeah. So you can have a film like Lady Hawk, where your premise is a fantasy world where people can be turned into birds and wolves and and you know true love can conquer and a and and a the you know uh, an eclipse can can break a magic spell i mean this is yeah. within the context of that world this all is treated as a thing that happens and is real and, and it's the same thing with the superman with the first superman film and I think for as much as I love some parts of of Superman two, as much as you know, there will always be the kneel before Zod. Mm -hmm. You know, would you like to step outside? Yeah. Um, you know, some of these incredibly iconic superhero movements is that first film. At no point does the film not treat the world that they're creating as anything other than this is a world and these are the rules within that world. Yeah, there's no winking at the audience. 
even well, even, and the thing is, is that even if you get a little bit, because you can kind of look at, you know, you can look at Christopher Reeve's performance, and even even if he were to look directly at the camera and wink. It wouldn't break out of it because it would almost be, and I, I, I'm glad he doesn't do that. But I mean, I think it's that kind of thing where you're, you're, almost along for the ride. I don't know. It's it's and and so much comes out of yeah. watching that film as a kid, and and you and I have talked about this before. Is that films like that, you know, um, you know, Batman '89, um, they. Def- Fine. You're at the right age to have those films define what you think a superhero is going to be as a kid, and then as you know, a, a, a becoming an adult. Yeah. yeah. And they can just sort of hit you at right, just the right points, um, and and make you sit there and go, you know, objectively speaking, you think about why would you cast someone who is he's tall and he's good looking but he's not particularly muscular but who else would you cast for that part yeah at that time well you know? i remember seeing an interview with him uh, uh it's been it's been floating around social media every now and again especially whenever any kind of a new superman movie comes out this comes this this comes to the fore where he's talking about his approach to superman and it kind of goes along the same lines of Donner's approach to everything. But but when when Chris Reeves sits there and says, at the core of Superman, he's a friend, and not not the hero, not the superhero, not the not any of the the powers or the you know he's an alien and he's in a new new world, any of that stuff. But to distill it down into just that. Superman is a friend completely changes the dynamic of that character and how everybody responds to that character because he's not alien visitor from another planet, you know, that, that, that whole thing, you know, he's just, you know, he's, he's, he's your neighbor. You know, it's, it's almost like if you put Mr. Rogers behind the shield, right? You know, you've got Superman, you've got Mr. Rogers, you got Bob Ross. Those three guys, they're you know. I mean, now I want to see now I want to see a superhero comic book with those three characters in it, right? But it it does fit with you know with Donner's approach to it is you know that that believability factor that you can have this superhero who isn't looking for any kind of glory or compensation or 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 you know, accolades or any of that. He just wants to help out. He's, you know, he's, he's going to do something that he's able to do that nobody else can do. (sighs) And then we get what we get now. (laughs) Well, and I think that there's, there's something to be said because of course, kind of characters get reinterpreted over time. You look at everything from, you know, the 1930s on as as the, the world changes and the audience changes, the comics change with them. That's just how it works. Um, and for better or for, for ill, um, you know, the, uh, somebody like Alan Moore comes along and, and changes comic books in the 80s. And 
we end up with the 90s and you know yeah so good and for ill um and dc took some of the wrong lessons and marvel took some of the wrong lessons and image <laughs> took some of the wrong lessons and, mm. and eventually you know seems to be working out at least in some ways in some cases but you know anyway yeah the 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 way we look at superheroes changes and i think that you you can look at an example of say um you know michael keaton's batman and then you look at christian bale's batman and christian bale's batman is you know the goal was root him in the real world yeah you know make you know it's all tech it's it's tech and, and and a trained fighter using the tech a very smart guy very rich guy you know but how does that work how does that work in the world you know a version of the joker that you can see going yeah that could be a person as opposed to a cartoon character or an exaggerated thing right so so and there's there's stories to be told there and then there's the cartoon oversized uh uh tim burton of of batman and batman returns which also works you look at something like the modern takes of superman and, and and i don't have a problem with with henry cavill as part i think he does a fine job when he's given the right material to work with sure yeah, he's, he's a very good actor um and he's great in the action parts and he looks superman he needs the spit curl, though. It's always bugged me. Any it Superman is, that doesn't have the spit curl. I mean, it, nice. it even bugs me about George Reeves not having it. I mean, he's probably the only one that gets away with it without me ever thinking much about it. But if I if I stop to think about it, it's like he needs it would, everybody needs the spit curl. It would be nice. And unfortunately, <laughs> I think and we've we've talked about this before with the, with the the Snyder um, take on the characters. Um, one of the things that makes Superman I think really really work and I think Donner got is that sense of being a friend is that sense of being um, a genuinely kind person who happens to have extraordinary abilities and the problem with making a character and this is you know, opinion folks this is just mine <clears throat> the problem with taking a character like superman and doing what uh, uh snyder did in, in man of steel is and there's nothing inherently wrong with the concept of a hero on a, on a journey to go from you know quest you know, figuring out your place in the world you know and 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 finding that place nothing wrong with that kind of story the problem with super doing that with Superman, and other other writers have struggled with this. Snyder's not the first because other authors have tried to do similar things with the character, and that these are people who often complain it's really hard to write a Superman story, mm-hmm. and it's hard to write certain kinds of Superman story, because the problem is is that once you if you have an angsty Superman, if you have a Superman who isn't sure about their place in the world, yeah. a Superman who isn't sure they want to help. Superman starts to become scary, which is when you get into the Man of Steel and you get to these really, you know, they're really well shot, very elaborate fight scenes with with Zod. You sit there and go, um, if you live in the DC universe, you're terrified. Mm-hmm. And the rather, as much as I don't 
think it worked all that well. The idea that Bruce Wayne would be terrified of Superman and think he had to be stopped, as much as I don't think it was handled well in the writing, it makes a certain amount of sense. In it makes universe. a lot of sense. Yeah. But you don't get that with, with Donner's take on the character. And a lot of that, of course, is Christopher Reeve's performance. He's a genuine, he comes across as a genuinely kind person. I but think, the way it's shot and filmed, yeah. it it makes him, it, it there's a warmth to the way the film is shot. Well, I think the, the other part, I, I think the other part too on that is, you know, you look at, you know the creative the creative clashes that Donner had with the Salkins, and a lot of it had to do with budget. You know we don't have the money, we don't have the money, and he never really knew how much his budget was. It was just you know let's let's do this, and and when he starts the project with a five hundred page script that he's got to go and do a page one rewrite because it's all wrong. Um, but the other part of that is is it 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 highlights this idea. That the studios never understood Superman because you even go back, you know, we go back as far as the Salkins with Donner and you look at now, uh, uh, David S. Goyer has said that he got this weird note from the studio when they were doing Man of Steel. Uh, where he's going to use his he's going to use his travel pod that, that brought him to Earth in order to stop the big world builder thing. Right. And the note that Goyer says he got back from the studio is, you can't use the pod. How will how will Superman get back to Krypton? Right. And Goyer says, we blew it up. You just watched it for 15, 20 minutes. We blew up the planet. Krypton's gone. I mean, it just it and it it just it just reinforces this idea that the suits at the studio don't get it and never have. Well, and you have to, there's, I think you run into, it was, I think, especially then, and especially up through the Snyder, at least the first couple of Snyder films, um, the idea that a lot of the folks who are pulling the trigger on these things, calling the shots on the money level, yeah, were not coming um, and you go look at the potential, you know, you got the, the back when, uh, you know, the, I know he's in the news right now for all kinds of fun reasons, but Kevin Smith, when he's got his tour show, he talks about the experience with John Peters where he went into pitch. Right. And, right. and Peters is, you know, all right, he's lying on his couch and he's got his fingers held over his head like this. He's like, tell me the story. And Smith is like, all right. <laughs> and, and he talks about it. And he goes, "Okay, you gotta, you gotta have the, the polar bears. Superman's gotta fight polar bears." And Kevin Smith's like, um, "Okay." And then giant mechanical spider. And it's like, "Oh, wait." And yeah. and he got these, his giant it, mechanical spider though in Wild Wild West. Exactly. And and Kevin Smith went to see Wild Wild West and went, "Well, there you go." Yep. And it's a terrible movie. With a great cast. Funny, so, funny, uh, funny thing about Wild Wild West. Richard Donner was supposed to direct that. He was originally scheduled to do that. You can only imagine it would have been a better movie. I, I imagine it would because Donner directed episodes of the original show, and 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 the the note that I read was that Donner was considering it, and he was looking at. 
uh, Mel Gibson as Jim, James West. Mm. And that would have been a much different film. Uh, and, and I actually kind of kind of hope that in some some corner of the multiverse, he actually got to make that movie. But instead, well, he went over could... and did Lethal Weapon. Well, but then you also got Maverick out of, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. Give you, Maver- an, give you an idea of what of what that would have looked potentially looked like yeah. a little bit. Um, yeah. Well, I think that you look at you look at something like for, for all that, you know, Mel Gibson's behavior has not always been ideal. Let's just say um, the lethal weapon films redefined the buddy picture. Yeah. And it did it in a way when, I mean, we've talked about this before, how, how films go through the film world goes through cycles and how we're still stunned. That the superhero cycle is still going on, right. it's going on a lot longer than we expected it to. And historically these kind of things have gone on. Um, we're about five, six years past the point where they should have collapsed at this point. I think that's yeah. I think that's that's. I think that's a fair assessment. I, I, I and I think some I'm of not that. Well, and I think some of that could be the the spectacle aspect of it has increased and it's become this bigger and bigger and bigger thing. And how, how much bigger can we get, I think is what's fueling a lot of that cycle. And now with the Marvel stuff, especially you start getting into phase four, where you're going to get a lot more obscure, lesser known characters. We'll see how, how long that bubble continues to last uh, with characters that maybe a whole lot of people don't know about. And I, and I know Iron Man was supposed to be this, you know, D level character, but comic, well, think, comic book think, fans know those characters. Right. But sure. The, the but the thing is, is that Mar the, the, I think what's fueling it is they cast that first wave really, really well mm-hmm. of who the, who they cast in the parts. And then they can turned it into a chapter in a story and you, you got him in with Robert Downey Jr. And then it's like, Oh, it's the next chapter, the next chapter, the next chapter. Yeah. And I think that, that by that point they've done as much as we love comic books, as much as comic book fans love comic books, they're a segment of the movie going audience. They're not the majority of the movie going audience. Right. They're a very and small so segment at this point. Unless uh, I'm not worried about the 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 folks who don't know these characters, because the vast majority of the moving going audience didn't know these characters. Period. Wow, there is that. Yeah. So the the idea that these these this next level of characters, if the stories are good, if the performances are good, the the vast majority of the moving going audience isn't going to know yeah. that these characters are are not well known because they're just it's another Marvel movie with a new set of characters. The right. trick is we built this big, expansive world with the first wave and, and you know, all these characters and they're, they're phasing out is are these scripts, are these actors, are these performances going to be strong enough to, to continue it? And that's just going to come down to, you know, a good script yeah. and good direction and good, good films. And if they are, who knows how long this is going to go. Anyway, sidetrack, we went off on the tangent. We do that. We do that. Um, 
the Lethal Weapon films, the buddy cop, those were people were had real no interest in those. Yeah. Um, I've I've always said I've maintained that Lethal Weapon was the modern day Starsky and Hutch. If if you had taken the first one, if you had taken the the Starsky and Hutch movie that they made, <clears throat> and if you had made it like Lethal Weapon, then you would have gotten Starsky and Hutch that we got in the series. Potentially, yeah. Because it was more like Starsky and Hutch than Starsky and Hutch was. So the problem with the problem with the first Lethal Weapon film is that it, it did with the first Die Hard film bit. It inspired a bunch of inferior <laughs> imitations, <laughs> and unfortunately, I think as and this is a, again personal opinion, the Lethal Weapon series, while entertaining, all the way through. Um. The first two films, I think, are really, really good. And then three is not quite as good. I Four was kind of like, well, we're doing this again. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I just, it just, you know, I mean, and if Lethal Weapon 4 is your favorite of the films, all power to you. But, um, and, and part of it is, is that the chemistry and freshness of the first one, which they maintained through the second one, by developing the characters, yeah, um, I think really had we didn't we didn't know Mel Gibson, we didn't know Danny Glover in this way, right? So, mm -hmm. so when they're playing, I mean, if you were fans of those actors before, you'd seen them in other things. Uh, Gibson had done Mad Max, he'd done Gallipoli, uh, he'd done other he'd done other films. Danny Glover, of course, had as well. But their chemistry and the story seemed fresh and the way that, that they handled that in the course of the direction, the action scenes, all this stuff going with that, that Donner was responsible for. Right. Um, that really all worked extremely well and you could maintain it in the second film. After the third one, in the fourth one, you're, you're kind of in, okay, Everybody likes this part of the story, so we're going to have more of this. And it's like, yeah, okay. Well, it felt to me when they when they introduced Rene Russo's character, it felt like, all right, what do we do different? Because you, now now it's okay. We've got a formula. How do we tweak the formula so we're not doing the same thing over and over again? And 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 you have an expansion of Joe Pesci's character. You've got Rene Russo coming in. You know, the introduction of Chris Rock's character in, in the series and all of these things. It just felt like it was like, okay, how do we how do we how do we change the recipe just a little bit so it's not the exact same thing? And it doesn't necessarily make it better. It just suddenly becomes different. And maybe it was a good idea, maybe well, not. I think I, unfortunately you run into the fact that with the character uh, you know, Mel Gibson's character is not you can't maintain that character too long. Right. That character, that character has to change or you commit him because <laughs> he's, well, I mean, yeah. I mean you, he's mentally unstable. And so you either have to address that and help him get better, which th that's what they try and do in the films, you know, in terms of his, his development as a character, or it's more of the same. And, 
quite frankly, if you want that, you want to see what that looks like, um, you can watch the Loaded Weapon movie. What is it? Loaded Weapon, which is one of my guilty pleasure. Um, this movie is so bad, it's entertaining. Yeah. Starring Sam Jackson. Um, and uh, it's not a good movie in any way, shape, or form, but it's got some... It's, it's is, that a Z- is that a Zucker movie? It's, I think, one of the, the Zuckers worked on it. Uh, it's one of the great tragedies in life that there is really only one great Zucker Abram Zucker's Zucker film mm-hmm. uh, and it's airplane and everything after that is like a lesser copy. It's like a bad Xerox. The further you get away from airplane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the more it's like, and then you get, and then you get the, uh, um, or those god awful movies. Um, it's like going from the Towering Inferno to twenty twelve. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just the degradation of quality in in story and concept, and the only the only thing I good I, thing I can say about 20, 2012 <laughs> is um, the bureaucrat, the the government bureaucrat character um oh god what is the name what is the name of the actor um i never I, I i will admit i never saw it i looked at the i looked at the promos and i thought oh well this is dumb right, well it's, <laughs> it, it's very that. big it's very big and it's it's very dumb yeah um but it has uh and it's roland emmerich i'm sorry it's what you're gonna do here um the well, oliver platt Oh, okay. Plays yeah. the, plays the like government him. character who consistently, everybody treats him like the bad guy mm-hmm. because he's the one going, okay, folks, we only have so much space, so much money, so much time. And he is right throughout the entire film. He's this guy going, okay, yes, we want to save as many people as we can. Now, how do we do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's like this. And he's he's constant because it's a Roland Emmerich film. He's a bureaucrat, therefore he's treated like just the enemy. Right. And yet every single time he says, "Well, you know, it's a problem, right?" And it turns out to be a problem. <laughs> or, you know, we have to do this now, right? I mean, he's he's not a likable person, but he's always right. So anyway, no. <laughs> forget twenty twelve. It's no it's no point in watching it. It's got a great cast. They were all they're all wasted in a dumb movie. You talk about uh, uh, Donner doing his TV stuff, and and we've we've kind of bounced around a little bit. But one of the things, uh, one of the one of the TV episodes that I I guess I had not realized he directed was twenty uh, Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet for the right. the Twilight Zone, the William right. Shatner you know uh, uh, Gremlin on a plane. Mm-hmm. There's something out there. I I didn't realize that he had directed that. I don't know how I missed that. But of course, it's one of the iconic episodes of and most the Twilight Zone. Episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah well, it's it's well, and I think that you look at you look at what he did. Um, you know, he cut his teeth on some of, and this was this is something you saw in in TV production all the time. Mm. Um, was that you know you'd work on a whole bunch of different shows, you'd move around to all kinds of different things. Um, but when you consider that some of these, you know, wagon train have gun will travel, the detectives, the riflemen, these are all shows I've watched as a kid. It's amazing. Um, 
the Twilight Zone, The Man from Uncle, Gilligan's Island, Perry Mason, mm-hmm. uh, The Fugitive, uh, D- David David Jansen. David Jensen, yeah, was the actor on that. I almost said David Johansson. That's a different actor. Um, <laughs> it'd be a very different show. Yeah, I would. David Johansson was playing the few... Now I want to see that. <laughs> In some other reality you have. Exactly. But, I mean, he, he continued directing all... You know, he was directed up into the 90s. Yeah. He was still directing TV. So Tales from the Crypt. Again, the you look on the horror side of things. Okay, you don't just think of the films he directed. The stuff he produced, folks. If you've seen an X Men movie, thank Richard Donner. He and his wife produced them. Yeah, well, and, and not only that, but you know, uh, Jeff Johns and Kevin Feige came out of the house of Donner. I mean, oh, yeah. they were they were both right there at the beginning. Jeff Johns worked for worked as an assistant for Donner. Uh, well, they wrote they wrote a, they wrote a book together. They wrote a Superman novel together, and they yeah. also wrote comics together. Yeah. So I mean, you know, there's these. these and are... when you think, and when you hear Jeff Johns is going to take over DC Films, you think, oh, okay, everything's going to be fine, and then it's not. So you know, it's uh, there's there's no just telling how it's going to work out. But Feige, just because somebody's written a good script doesn't, you know, good, good comic book for a while doesn't mean they're going to be a good uh, producer of an well, of that's a true. Large scale uh, project. Now Feige uh, has turned out to be uh, pretty sharp. As far as you know, well, it, figuring out what works and what doesn't, and making a plan. So there's there's some interesting things that happens, and one of these days we're going to have to see if we and it'll be hindsight, right? Mm. We'll be looking back, we'll be like it, looking back at this era of comic book film. Yes, because it will end, folks. It it will. It's just how it works. Um, it may be, maybe you know, it may be quite some time. Great uh, if you're a fan of comic book movies, but. Um, it's still going to happen. It'll will will come to an end. There will be a retrospective, a looking back at <laughs> why this worked, why this didn't work. Maybe we um, do that we, on our five hundredth episode. There we go. With <laughs> with the hindsight where we have more information as opposed right. to everyone going, this is why. You know, we all speculate why things don't work, right? Yeah. Um, but people will be telling their stories, blah blah blah, and we'll be looking back. And it, I think, some of it is going to come down. This is my prediction, probably wrong. Some of it's going to come down to uh, how good these people are as managers of other talented people. Mm-hmm. Because talent, this may come as a surprise, but talented, you throw a bunch of talented people into a room together, it doesn't always develop into the smoothest most organized process right because you got to manage egos at the same time well egos and skill sets and the fact that everyone you know if you're a successful writer you have faith in your own talent a lot of times everyone you know there's a lot of folks who who are like i can't believe people are still buying my books or watching my movies or reading my <laughs> comics i don't know how i got here yeah. um and some of that's imposter syndrome people just deal not be able or you know they're just they're never going to feel good enough and and that's unfortunate because some of them are incredibly talented but right. um sometimes you really do have that that deserved sense of accomplishment and yeah ego and 
someone else comes along and goes, yeah, but I, we, we need to change your script. <laughs> mm, you know, so, I mean, the, there's, I think the ability Feige has shown to, to herd a bunch of very talented cats. Um, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a real strength. I, I think a lot of that comes back to, um, something that I noticed a while back, I guess maybe, maybe during phase two of that, it hit me that the Marvel cinematic universe is not a set of movies. And like you were talking about their chat, their various different chapters. Right. And if you look at them and I've said this in, in a, in a couple of places before Kevin Feige is the showrunner on a very big TV series. Right. And each of these movies is an episode in this TV series. And that's how you're maintaining it. Because if you look at something like the original Star Trek, for example, or you look at any television show where they have multiple different writers and directors that come in and out and in and out, whatever, the, the, the voice of the show, the identity of the show comes from the show runner. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people have a problem with Alex Kurtzman. It's Kurtzman's fault, you know, whatever. And the show runner gets identified pro and con with whatever the show looks like. Sure. And you look at the Marvel universe the same way. It's, it's, Everything is part of a whole, and Feige is the the universal constant in that in that whole thing. Right. Uh, and I think with the X Men's uh, the X Men movies, you had the same kind of thing with Don with uh, Donner and his wife being there, because they were in charge of all of those. And so you <laughs> have this. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't to the same extent that Feige has had his hands in the Marvel universe. But whenever you see a movie that's produced by Richard Donner and Lauren Schuller Donner, you kind of get a little bit of an idea of what kind of movie you're going to get. I, I think to a point, because I think that when you get into just because I think especially when you get into the uh, the later X-Men films, they're less it's more much more studio driven and and they don't have I mean, they're they are better known for producing the early X-Men mm. films than they are the later ones. And I think a lot of that is their focus wasn't really on that just because you're producing something. So again, folks, I'm sure if, we've talked about this before. I think a little bit, there's various kinds of producers. There's the money producer and then there's the producer who gets things actually done. Yeah. Um, and that's, those are two big buckets and there's a lot of all kinds of different things. And, it's why you see so many different producer credits, and it's like this this opening credit sequence is sixteen minutes long, and fifteen <laughs> of it was producers. How does that work? Well, it's because you know a lot of people threw money at this thing, and that gets you a producer credit. You always, always watch out for the ones who actually get producer credits for doing things. Those are the ones you want on your side, right? The money is nice, but you want the folk who can actually call somebody and get something done. Those are the producers you want. Um, but I mean, you look at, you still, you can look at this. I mean, up, up till the some of the other stuff he produced, um, the lost boys, one of the iconic 1980s films and a, a film that defined horror for a while, heavily influenced a lot of horror films. Yeah. 
Um, if you're a fan of kids' movies, the Free Willy films, first two. Um, Tales from the Crypt. All right. Now, so, if that won't give you whiplash, yeah, I know. watch Free Willy and then and then Lost Boys or, or Tales from the Crypt or, or The Omen. Free Willy 2 and Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, were the same year. Uh, 1995. Um, I am I am a big fan of Tales from the Crypt, uh, uh, Demon Knight. So that's the one with Billy Zane uh, playing the bad guy, and Billy Zane is keenly aware that he is in the Tales from the Crypt movie. He is chewing the scenery so much; it, he is having all the fun. I still want to see him in. A phantom sequel. I think that would be great. But uh, Tales from the Crypt, Bordello of Blood, which is the next in the series. Mm. And and this of... Uh, Dennis Miller... There, when Dennis Miller was at the height of his comedic career, he was a star. Yeah. He's not a great actor. And <laughs> he was... He basically... Well... His performance is basically a whole bunch of sarcasm held together by a script. Yeah. Um, and to a degree it works, but you you went to watch that film for Angie Everhart being in it as a <laughs> as a sexy vampire as opposed to to uh, going for Dennis Miller. But yeah. it it unfortunately it didn't have the it didn't have the the level of quality uh, yeah. as silly as Demon Knight ultimately is. It had an amazing cast. It's kind of like uh, that. Is what was that movie? There was a movie that Cindy Crawford did with Stephen Baldwin. I don't. I don't even. Remember. It was a. It was a thing. She was. She was no on the return. Run. I don't no know. She, she was on the something run. Like he was a yeah, cop, yeah. and he was he was tasked to pro- protect her or something. I was like, it. It wasn't a very good movie, but nobody nobody went to see a good movie. Everybody went to see Cindy Crawford in a movie. Exactly. So, and, yeah, and same you know. kind of thing. Now he didn't. Donner didn't always get things right. So you got X Men Origins Wolverine mm-hmm. as a film. He was the executive producer on. Right. He didn't write the script. That's not his fault. Um, but he did executive produce, and it is very much considered, you know, one of the worst X Men films. Um, but you know, he did uh, um, you know conspiracy theory. And, you know, however you feel about about um, Mel Gibson. Um, these are these are some of the films that M- Gibson really shines in. The Lethal Weapon movies, uh, Conspiracy Theory was, you know, especially when you consider it to be a sequel. Um, oh no, I just it went out of my head. Ah, oh, Conspiracy Theory is a is is. Uh... It is. No, I'm, no, I'm, I'm. Oh no, I'm thinking of a different movie. <gasps> what is the one? The conversations. It's, what's the? It's the. It, that's that's with uh, Will Smith. It's the movie with Will Smith was the uh, unofficial sequel to the conversation with. Uh, oh no! I'm drawing a blank. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh... So Gene Hackman made a film called The Conversation, where he played a guy who was a essentially a spy listening in. Oh, uh, uh, Enemy of the State. Enemy of the State. Enemy of the State, which is it's it's not officially a sequel to The Conversation, but everything about that movie tells you that uh, uh, it's a sequel to that con- <laughs> to The Conversation. 
just bigger and even more paranoid. But no, conspiracy <laughs> theory is um, conspiracy theory is a really solid, entertaining, entertaining thriller. I wasn't as impressed with Timeline as a movie, but yeah. also, you know what? I think don't Timeline is not one of Michael Crichton's best novels. It's it's some of that's the source material. It's just not a. I mean, it's a it's an interesting idea, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, there's this guy, this director, really, really made so many films that shaped what we think of as the superhero movie, as the horror film, as the buddy cop picture. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is he had. He had a pretty impressive impact on the pop culture that we think of when we think about these characters. By and the quite way, frankly, that... his version of Maverick is one of the better adaptations if we're gonna, you're going to update yeah. a film into, you know. Especially with the reveal of James Garner's character I at know. the end. You know, it's like, wait a minute. You know that that photograph of of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen from from uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. It's like all the all the original Maverick fans. I, I know what he did there. I see that. By the yeah. way, that Cindy Crawford movie was called Fair Game. Ah, there we go. Yeah. So there was there's a whole series of films, and of course, Lethal Weapon is one of them, where it was two words. Yeah. Fair game, no return. Die hard. Lethal weapon. Die hard. <laughs> oh, what is it? Steven, Steven Seagal even had a career. Um, under Siege. Under Siege. That's Although, actually... Under Siege is not a bad movie. No, and Under Siege 2 is not... It's not as good a film. No. It's not as... No, both of them are not great films. But it's, it's still entertaining. But Under Siege is good for Tommy Lee Jones' performance. If, if well, for er- nothing else... To see Tommy Lee Jones chew the scenery the way he does in that movie. Eric Bogusonian in the second one. The only reason to watch the movie is for the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because he has got... he is Well, I his, mean, uh, Erica Oleniak in the first one... All right. Yeah, but you, you don't watch it for Steven Seagal. Steven no. Seagal has the screen presence of a turnip. I'm sorry. <laughs> he is just not... I, I mean, hey... You know, he, kudos it, for having a career, he a, but he had a lot more potential than what was actually realized. Because when okay. people, when he first started, when it was a Steven Seagal movie, I mean, you you knew you were going for the for the martial arts anyway, because the man had talent there. The acting, not so much, but when his career started. He was he was an action star because of the martial arts. And there was a period of time when you could actually just be an action star. Yeah. And I think that we are all better served that we have moved beyond <laughs> into the you realm know, of every now and again it would be nice to have a little bit of a throwback movie of some sort like that. I, don't do, mind a I mean throwback we're movie, going back but... to the nineties for just about everything that we're doing now anyway. Yeah, I mean but I think I, I Audiences, audiences, I think, want more than just a bunch of action sequences. You need to, because you can get something like that in like a John Wick movie. Mm-hmm. 
but there's a plot and there's a mystery and Keanu Reeves is, you know, yeah. got a character that you've developed. And the thing is, is that you don't go to a Steven Seagal film looking for character. <laughs> so what do you think is going to happen with, wanting. yeah. What do you think is going to happen with lethal weapon five now? Cause they were in pre-production. He was, he was actually planning um, to do it. I, I think if it's, it, his production studio is still going on. His wife is still alive. She's yeah. still a producer. Um, I think that if they've got a good script and they've got development going with it, I think that they will find a way to make it happen. Um, I'm a little... Gibson's behavior over the years has cast a shadow over that sort of thing. I think that you know he's he's had a bit of a comeback in, in some smaller yeah, I think projects. He's, I think he's mellowed out over the last few years. Not, well, and not we'll have, so we'll much... Have, We'll have to see. I mean, there's this question of that, obviously. But it also depends on what kind of film you're going to get. Because at the risk of, you know, hitting the beat button, they're both too old for this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, Harrison Ford is doing Indiana Jones 5. But, you know, you're looking Maybe. at that and you're, as I think they're recognizing the fact that, you know. Yeah. There's if you could you could have Harrison Ford do Indiana Five or Indiana Jones Five, but you can't ignore the fact that Harrison Ford is not a young man doing Indiana Jones Five. Well, and I have heard a rumor from a couple of different places that one of the reasons why Antonio Banderas has come on board that movie is because Harrison Ford's injury is more severe than anybody was letting on and he's not coming back. Oh, well, and, you know, we saw the photographs from Glasgow with his body double and the face dots. So we know we're going to get some of that, you know, the reface type of thing. But, you know, first we heard, you know, he was going to be out a couple of weeks because he hurt his shoulder. And then we heard, well, you might have to fly back to the States for surgery and be gone for six weeks. And then we heard eight weeks and then we heard three months. And well, I mean, and then I, suddenly I, Antonio Banderas is joining the cast, and apparently, and I mean, I'm hearing that there's going there's there's major rewrites probably, around the fact I that mean, Harrison Ford's not coming back. I mean, this is all rumor, right? But, but think about it. I mean, in in all in all fairness, to as much as we love having these actors come back and play these iconic parts, and there's something to be said for for telling another story, one last hurrah. Mm. The fact of the matter is, is that bodies get older and you can't do some of this stuff. And I think that you you have to ask yourself a question at some point. Is is it a part that can get recast? Is it a character that can continue on beyond this actor? And I think that to some degree, sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, quite frankly... um, because I can, although I the, the film overall is a disappointment, there are still moments of the fourth Indiana Jones film that I can enjoy. Because I, there's parts of it that are that are fun and parts yeah. of it I don't I just can't stand. But the, the fact is, we the got jungle, four the jungle Indiana- chase. The jungle chase. You trim ten. You you trim five minutes out of the jungle chase, and, and it would make it a much better movie. But you've got you've got four Indiana Jones films over several decades. Yeah. Quite frankly, great. And I've got, I've got, you know, it's, it's like as much as we want to see some of this stuff continue on and more new stories. And sometimes, again, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, 
eventually someone will recast the part and there'll be a new Indiana Jones or a new Indiana Jones like character. Right. And a new series of films. And the same thing with the lethal weapon. There will, there'll be another body buddy cop film that comes along. The question I have, you go back and you're looking, going back to Donner's catalog here is when do we get that next superhero film that makes a generation of kids feel like Superman did? Mm, I, yeah. As much as much as I have enjoyed the Marvel movies, as much as I have enjoyed um, DC films like Wonder Woman and and I enjoyed Aquaman for just being a big dumb spectacle, um, and sometimes you just didn't want a big dumb spectacle out of your sure. comic book movie. Sure. Um, Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman probably comes as close for me personally out of this batch. Well, and Patty Jenkins of, has even said, you know, it's it's basically an homage to Richard right. Donner and and Chris Reeve in, in Superman 78. But I think you could also you could also look at Captain America. Yeah. As, on, on as the, on another the one of those that kind of does a similar type of thing. So and I think that, that that's going to be the key, really, yeah. is is somebody for all... And, and maybe we'll get that out of Marvel's next phase. Maybe we'll get that out of the, the next crop of DC films. We'll have to see. We can have somebody who kind of captures that. Because you look at what he did. You look at what Donner did with uh, the TV work, especially... But you look at, you know, The Omen. It mm. defi- it, you know, it, that kind of horror film still exists. You know the, the 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 antichrist child, the 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 evil kid. Yeah. The omen shaped so much of what we think about when both in the states and across the world with horror. Um, Superman did the same thing for the superhero movie. How Lethal much, Weapon did that for the for the buddy films. Yeah. And how I mean, much do just, you think Donner's influence on Feige has had has had an impact on the success of the Marvel films? Um, I think certainly he's seen an example of somebody who has consistently put in serious effort, and you know, you, certainly personality conflicts like he had with Bill Murray. But generally, people regarded Donner as a very friendly, understanding, pleasant person to work with, mm-hmm. and I think that that he had that as a lesson. He had that as a. a you know, an example to work with, and maybe he took that experience to heart. Well, not just that, but the whole verisimilitude, you know, that idea, that that concept of believability within the universe. I think, I think, I think, think Feige's, Feige's probably taken that and, and run with that ball, I think. I think the only, I think, and we've mentioned this before a couple of times, I think, um, I think my only, my biggest problem with the Marvel movies is that they've, discovered they have a successful formula and so many of their films fall into that formula yeah and that's nothing there's nothing wrong with that people enjoy that formula as myself personally (laughs) i like it when they break out a little more which is which is why i've liked wandavision and the loki series because they break out of that formula right uh and and but but still work well within the bigger picture of the Marvel movies, but they they took the chances that they took and mm-hmm. they worked, which is always nice when you take a chance and it works. Sometimes yeah. it does not. <laughs> what are you going to do? You mm-hmm. end up with, uh, you know, 
X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to be a good place where we can kind of put a button on this and 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 stop for the night. Uh, those of you who have been watching this as it as it plays, thanks very much for being here. Uh, you, any of you that have comments and thoughts on Richard Donner's career or verisimilitude, yes, sir. You've 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 had a thought. I see a, a look on your I, face. Yes, because we would. We would do a grave disservice, and they would point it out. I don't think we mentioned the Goonies even once this. Episode. Yes, you you did. Did you, I? You did. did I? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we we kind of we kind of wandered far afield in yeah. the clips, but yes, you did. You did mention the Goonies. And but I think I may have mentioned it once, and I think someone's going to immediately pop up in the comments. How could you not mention the Goonies? Well, well, why don't why don't we do this? Because it it deserves an it deserves a rewatch. Oh yeah, no kidding. So we could, we could spend an entire hour on the Goonies uh, in 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 a future episode. We could we could do that. And, yeah, let's do and that. Just break that out. All right. So so we will expand <laughs> on Goonies. Never say die. Uh, on a future uh, a future installment here. In the meantime, uh, if you have not subscribed to the to the channel yet, we do invite you to do that. Have your notifications turned on. We've got plenty of shows for you to enjoy and uh, um, I'm very proud of the work that we do here I've got a got a pretty solid team here and and hopefully hopefully there's something here in our programming that you can enjoy and share with other people we do it we do ask you to share if you are listening to this as a podcast if you want to rate it and comment uh, you can always send us an email, h2o at sci-fi for me.com, or you can leave a comment on any of the places where there are players and there are places you can leave comments. And we will do this all again next week, assuming that uh, the computers cooperate and the work schedules cooperate, and we'll see what happens. Always, always factors to consider, but we'll give it a shot. All right, that's going to do it for us. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Have a good night. Thanks, guys. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.